Chapter 14, from the point of view of James, Chicken Man. For months after my stepfather died, Mommy walked around the house as if she were blind, staggering through the motions of life. She gave away Daddy's clothes, his tools, his hats, gone to goodwill. She sent us off to school and tried to maintain her crazy house as usual, ranting about this and that, but the fire was gone. In the evening, she often sat at the kitchen table completely lost in thought. She'd stop mid-sentence and walk away silently, covering her face. At night, she cried in her bedroom, though she always hid her tears from us. Daddy's gold Pontiac sat in front of the house for months, leaves gathering around the tires and bird crap gathering on its hood. I'm going to learn to drive it, she promised. But instead, she started riding her bike and taking piano lessons. Sitting at the piano every evening, staring at the music and slowly, excruciatingly picking out the notes to her favorite gospel hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. She played each note separately as if they had no connection to each other, and they echoed through the house and landed on the walls like tears. I couldn't stand to hear it. I would cover my ears at night, or better still, I would just go out. There was no one to tell me not to. My grades plummeted almost immediately. I attended Benjamin Cordozo High School in Bayside, Queens, and while I had been a good student in the ninth grade, the following year I more or less dropped out. I failed everything. I left home in the mornings and simply didn't go to school. Just like Mommy did years before me, I began my own process of running, emotionally disconnecting myself from her, as if by doing so I could keep her suffering from touching me. After years of waiting, I was finally the king in my house, the oldest kid, with the power to boss and torture my younger siblings the way I'd been bossed and tortured. But now that the moment had arrived, I spent as much time away from home as possible. I quit church and avoided my deeply religious godparents. I was the first kid on my block to smoke cigarettes and reefer. I joined a soul band, Black Ice, on the other side of town, playing any instrument I could round up, sax, flute, and bass, all borrowed. We played cool in the gang songs for hours, smoking weed, drinking old English 800 malt liquor, and rehearsing in the drummer's basement for days at a time until the guy's mother threw us out, at which time we'd find another place to jam. The band attracted legions of followers, girls, of whom at 14 I was still deathly afraid, and new friends, cool cats, named Beanie, Marvin, Chink, Pig, and Bucky, who smoked cigarettes and reefer, digging the band's sounds. Oh yeah, you can play, man. You are smoking. My new friends and I shoplifted. We broke into cars. We snuck onto the nearby Conrail, Long Island Railroad tracks, and broke into freight cars, robbing them of bicycles, television sets, and wine. Once, a cop called us up there, looking to steal, but we had no goods on us. He lined us up against a freight car and searched us, then smashed one kid in the face with his blackjack. The kid had tried to say he wasn't with the rest of us. He led us around the freight yards at gunpoint for about an hour, waving his gun under our noses and saying, You black scum, I should shoot you right now. We thought we were going to die, but he let us go. It didn't deter us. At one point, we found a freight car so full of wine we stole crates and crates of it. Half the teenagers in St. Albans were wandering around drunk for weeks. The cops tried to crack down, and one night caught four of us dividing up the cases of stolen wine on a dead-end street. They rushed in on us, two squad cars with headlights off, and cops in the front and back, engines roaring, tires squealing, while we scattered like flies into the junkyard nearby. I barely got away. I was running behind my big, slow friend Marvin and couldn't make it to the fence on the other side of the junkyard where everyone else escaped. I dove under an abandoned dump truck and lay quiet, 
still clasping a bottle of cheap peppermint-tasting wine in my hand, gritting my teeth and nearly peeing on myself as I watched the cop's shoes and saw the beam of their flashlights zipping around just inches from my feet. The next day, I got so drunk in relief I couldn't make it home. My friend Joe carried me to my house, where I fell down, got up, pissed in the street in front of my sisters, who were desperately trying to get me into the house without Mommy seeing me, then collapsed. When I woke up hours later, Mommy was sitting at the foot of my bed, whipping belt in hand. She whipped me mercilessly, tears in her eyes. It did not help. My friends became my family, and my family and my mother just became people I lived with. I was obviously hiding, and angry as well, but I would never admit that to myself. The marvelous orchestrated chaos that Mommy had so painstakingly constructed to make her house run smoothly broke down when Daddy died, and Mommy was in no fixing mood. My stepfather's final admonition to me went unheeded as I absolved myself of all responsibility and stayed out of the house as much as possible, thus avoiding the emotional impact of watching Mommy suffer. She, in turn, suffered more, having no one to help her to keep the younger ones in line. In addition, she had no money to pay heating bills and light bills and phone bills, sending every dime she had from my stepfather's pension and her small work salary and social security to my siblings in college and grad school. Gradually, the house slipped farther and farther into disrepair. I ignored it. To earn dough, I sold reefer, keeping a stash of it at the railroad tracks. When I ran out, I talked my friend Joe into robbing a dealer who we knew had a big stash. Joe had a 22 caliber pistol and I carried a straight edge shaving razor I'd found along my stepfather's things. We strong-armed the dealer for the weed and when he protested, I hit him and he backed off. When we ran out of dough from that, we snatched a purse on Newburgh Street from an old black woman who screamed and hollered while we laughed and ran. We got a dollar and 16 cents and Joe felt sorry for the woman and refused to do it again. So I did it alone, waiting in the dark doorway of a closed barber shop as the women got off the bus, ripping the purses out of their protesting hands as they cried out in fear and shock. Punk that I was, I did feel sorry for them. Their screams echoing in my ears as I ran, my heart beating so hard it felt like a brick pounding against my chest, but not sorry enough. I was numb. I felt I was getting back at the world for injustices I had suffered. But if you sat me down and asked me which injustices I was talking about, I wouldn't have been able to name them if my life depended on it. I snatched old women's purses just as I had seen my own mother's purse snatched when I was eight years old. But in my mind, the two acts were not related. I had no feelings. I had smothered them. Every time they surged up, I shoved them back down inside me the way you stuff clothing in a drawer and shut it. Reefer and wine helped me to forget any pain. And as the pain and guilt increased, my problems with drugs worsened. I took pains to, to keep my life as a punk a secret from my mother. I stole a bunch of blank report cards from the school library rather than have Ma see my horrible grades, which were basically zero since I never showed up. It was a complicated project requiring real ingenuity and a friend named Vincent who helped, but I made the mistake of asking my sister Kathy to fill out the one I used for myself because I was afraid Mommy would recognize my handwriting. Instead of putting down my usual grades, I had been an A student. Kathy wrote in C grades. Mommy looked at the grades and said, James is no C student. She picked up the phone and called the school and got the shock of her life. She could not punish me. She knew that. I was too old, too strong, and too far gone. She enrolled me in summer school and I got thrown out. My older brothers came home from college and admonished me, beating me from one end of the house to the other. I still got high and stayed out all hours. Finally, Mommy sent me to stay with my sister Jack, who had moved from Harlem to Louisville, Kentucky, with her new husband. 
Jack will straighten your butt out, she sniffed. I told her I doubted it. I love Jack. She was a small, pretty Christian black woman with freckles and brown eyes that missed nothing. She wore elaborate wigs and talked real down home with a heavy, deep accent full of I ain'ts and come ons. She sometimes wrapped her head in scarves and worked as a cook and domestic, usually for white people. But beneath her domestic look was an intelligent, clairvoyant woman who understood more about me as a mixed child than I understood about myself. Jack had lived in Harlem for 10 years before moving to Kentucky. She knew more about the street than I did. Going to stay with Jack for the summer was not punishment for me. It was sweet liberty, and I stayed there three straight summers, always managing to get tossed from summer school in New York City just to get sent down there. Jack was too busy to keep a watchful eye on me, or so I thought. She had a young baby, worked full-time as a cook in a cafeteria, and had a husband who was a handful. The first time I came to her house, she told me, You want to hang out? Go hang out. You'll see. But if you come into my house with a gun, I'll shoot you myself. And she meant it. She let me run around, albeit reluctantly, with her husband, Big Richard, whom I worshipped. He was a tall, thin, chocolate-skinned man with a mustache who favored shades, short-sleeved shirts, shiny shoes, and shark-skin pants, and always held a lit cigarette between his teeth. Big Richard was a cool customer who ran with some rough characters down in Louisville. But while many of his friends had been cut, stabbed, maimed, and shot, Big Richard always stayed injury-free because his brain worked like a blige pump, immediately sucking info out of any situation, his mind clicking between those dark shades at all times. He could walk into a nightclub and sniff danger instantly, backing right out away. Someone's going to get shot in there, he'd say. And sure enough, the next day you'd hear that someone got tagged. Richard worked at the Brown and Williamson tobacco plant, but all day and night before his shift started, he and I would go hang out with the boys on the corner at the Vermont liquor store, a couple miles from Jack's house at 34th and Vermont Avenue on the city's west side. The three summers I spent at Vermont Liquors on the corner, which Big Richard pronounced Kona, were my true street education. The men on the corner were southern working men, plumbers, carpenters, painters, drunks, con artists, retired army lifers from nearby Fort Knox, tobacco workers for Brown and Williamson, and just some plain old hustlers. They were big, muscled men with white teeth and huge arms, who wore work clothes and undershirts, painter's pants and work boots. They smoked filterless Pall Malls, and Terrytons and drove big cars, Electra 225s, Cadillacs, and long Oldsmobiles. They liked fine women, good whiskey, crap games, and the local softball league in which they fielded a team of good-natured alcoholics. They played other teams of good-natured na alcoholics, and while fist fights occasionally broke out, rarely there was a gunfight afterwards. The men on the corner were honorable drinking men with their own code of ethics. A man's word was his bond. You never insulted anyone's woman. You didn't drink from the same bottle as a man who confessed to oral sex with women. You never cuffed the dice during crap games. And if you pulled out a gun, which you shouldn't do, you'd better use it before you get, it got used on you. They had names like Red, Hot Sausage, One-Armed James, and Chicken Man, an old drunk who was my favorite. Chicken Man was a small man with deep, rich, almost copper-toned skin, a wrinkled face, and laughing eyes. He wore an old fishing hat that seemed to cover his entire face and plaid pants that left almost two inches of sock and four inches of ankle showing. He smelled of liquor and bitter all the time, but he kept a pocket full of candy, which he laid on the various children who came by the liquor store to see him, some of his kin and some not. You could see him coming from a distance, appearing out of nowhere like an angel. 
his silhouette seeming to rise from the ground in the simmering heat, though he actually emerged from one of the ramshackle houses that lined the road a half mile away. He'd stagger up 34th Street with a wandering bird lost in flight, his hands spread out at his sides like he was flying, waving at cars that honked at him, arriving on the corner at 2 p.m., drunk. He'd set up shop on the corner like it was his office, sitting in the front of the liquor store on a wood crate and drinking till he ran out of liquor or money, at which time he'd stagger off, blindly drunk, laughing at some silly philosophy he'd just laid down. Chicken Man was a sweet man. He was completely incoherent when he was drunk, but when he was sober, he was one of the chief philosophers of the corner. He'd sit on his crate like King Tut, his arms folded, his head shaking, and he'd watch traffic pass, commenting on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, money, liquor. Don't mix corn liquor and cheap wine. Ever. And women. Never pork a woman on her period or bodies given off filth. Chicken man laughingly called white folks Mr. Charlie or Chuck. How Mr. Charlie got his name, Chicken Man explained one day, is from when you're drunk. You call on him like this, Charlie. He feigned throwing up. But when you're real, real drunk, you call on him like this, Chuck. He feigned severe throwing up. What about Ralph, I asked, knowing full well that when a dude threw up, we called it Ralphing. At least in New York we did. Forget Ralph. He don't count. Mr. Charlie counts. Now buy me a beer. The men on the corner seemed to pay no attention to Mr. Charlie. The closest they came to him was when the police rode by, sometimes stopping to ask if anyone had seen this person or that person. They were met with stony silence, or sometimes even jokes and laughter. The men did not seem to be afraid of the police, nor did they dislike them. Their lives just seemed complete without the white man. I like that. Their world was insular, away from the real world that I was running from. They called me New York and let me sit out there all day practicing my flute and smoking all the weed I wanted. I turned 15 on the corner, but could act like I was 25 and no one cared. I could hide. No one knew me. No one knew my past, my white mother, my dead father, nothing. It was perfect. My problem seemed far, far away. One of Big Richard's good friends was a guy named Pike, who had dark skin, a mustache, and an easygoing manner. I stole a few car batteries with Pike until somebody saw us in the driveway at night, flicked the porch light on, and took a pot shot at us. You don't need to be doing this no way, Pike said, panting for breath, when we were in the clear. He wouldn't let me run with him anymore after that. Like most dudes on the corner, he looked out for me. When I protested, saying I needed money, he said, don't worry. I'm going to get you a job in a turd factory, making all the money you want. What's a turd factory, I asked. It's a factory where they make turds. He explained this to me one afternoon while he, Big Richard, and I were cruising around in the car. Big Richard was riding shotgun, chomping on a cigarette, and staring out the window to keep from laughing. I want the job, I said. What do I do? You sit in a big chair, and the turds float down this long stream of water, and you separate the big turds from the little turds. How do you do that? They got a tool you use. Or you can use your hand. Whatever, it don't matter. It's good money, man. You want the job or not? I want it, man. I want the job. Take me there. I finally did get a real job pumping gas at a station about a mile from the corner. The man who ran it was named Herman, a big, burly black man with a wide chest who was mean as the day was long. My first day on the job, the mechanic at the station, a young, light-skinned black guy, told me, don't cross Herman. You put two men down already. I didn't ask any questions about those two cats just made sure I wasn't the third because Herman was a big mean irritated angry butt kicking dude every night just before closing time he'd hand me a bucket full of gas and a mop and say 
Mop this goddamn floor and don't smoke while you're doing it, neither. Then he'd stand right outside the door and smoke and watch me mop the entire floor of the auto shop. Nobody ever robbed Herman's station while I was there, nor did any customers ever fool with him. My job was to pump gas, change tires, fix flats, and generally keep out of Herman's way, which I was more or less, which I more or less did. But I got into a fist fight with one of his friends, a scar-faced, scratch-a-match-in-the-palm-of-his-hand homosexual who was harassing me. Who knows, maybe it was my girly face and New York accent, but he got funky with me one afternoon, and I punched him in the face a few times before he went under his car seat for his pistol and chased me around the station. The ruckus caused a big stir, and Herman fired me on the spot. I retreated to the corner, plotting revenge and seeking wisdom from my main man, Chicken Man. A sober Chicken Man had two words of advice for me. Forget it, he said. I can't forget it. I should have gotten a gun and shot him, I said. Chicken Man chuckled. You don't know shit from Shinola, he said. Is that how you want to end up? Going to jail for him? Because that's where you'll end up, doing time and hanging on this corner when you get out. Is that what you want for yourself? Because if you do, you can have it. Go on. I'm a smart guy, I said. I don't have to take that kind of shit. Nobody knows how smart I really am, Chicken Man, but I'm smart. And nobody will give a damn neither, Chicken Man snapped. Everybody on this corner is smart. You ain't no smarter than anybody here. If you're so smart, why you got to come on this corner every summer? Because you flunk in school. You think if you drop out of school, somebody's going to beg you to go back? Hell no. They won't beg your black ass to go back. You make so, you, you think you're so special that they beg you? Who are you? You ain't nobody. If you want to drop out of school and shoot people and hang on this corner all your life, go ahead. It's your life. I had never heard Chicken Man talk so severely. And what he said didn't really hit me. Not right away. I said to myself, he's just a drunk. And continued my adventures. Not long after, however, a guy named Mike, an easygoing, humorous, six-foot-eight guy who had always encouraged me to get off the street, had an argument on the corner with his girlfriend, Mustang, a fine, lithe black woman with a large black ass and a foxy wiggle. As the argument progressed, Mike began slapping Mustang around so hard I wanted to jump in. But Chicken Man stopped me. Leave that alone, New York, he hissed. That's between him and his woman. Don't ever get between a man and his woman. Mustang left the corner in her car, burning rubber, promising to bring her new boyfriend back to kill Mike. The corner quickly emptied. There was nothing like the threat of a gunfight to make everybody go home. The next day, Big Richard gave me explicit instructions to, quote, stay off the corner. But I snuck over there anyway and watched as Mike came by that afternoon, rumbling up in his big Buick, playing Marvin Gaye on his eight-track player. He cut the engine and got out whistling, totally cooled off, like it was another day at the office. He walked to the back of his car, opened the trunk, and calmly pulled out a lawn chair, a towel, and a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun with both barrels taped together. He set the lawn chair in front of the store and sat down on it. He put a bottle of J&B Scotch on the ground on one side of him, a bottle of Boone's, Far Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill wine on the other side, placed his shotgun on his lap, and put the towel over it. I'm going to sit here and drink and rock, and I'll wait for him, he said coolly. He sat there for two days, rocking, drinking while the men tiptoed around him, keeping one eye on the road and one eye on Mike. Mustang's new boyfriend never showed up. The next week, Mike and Mustang showed up on the corner, arm in arm, kissing and hugging. That's why I don't have no arguments with no woman, Chicken Man said. It don't do nothing but fool you around. But not long after, he did get into an argument with a woman. They argued in the morning, and he went off and forgot about it. And later that day, she came into the liquor store and stabbed him as he was waiting in line to buy a beer. 
He coughed a few times, then lay down on the floor and died.